1: Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au.
5: Solidarity forever!
4: And good morning, it's Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. It's a lovely day outside and if you're snuggling under the uh, doona, then that's okay too. Uh, Today's program is uh, threaded by the one theme, which is uh, the changing complexion of policing in Australia and its effect on civil society. So, first up, we're going to be having a chat with Professor Jude... McCulloch from Monash University, who's written two books. Uh, recently, a new book came out. Uh, she uh, has written a book called The Blue Army Paramilitary Policing in Australia, which uh, came out earlier. Uh, in the piece around uh, the investigations of fatal shootings uh, during the 80s in uh, Australia. And now she's just put out a book called Pre-Crime, Prevention, Precaution and the Future, which is being put out by Rutledge, which is taking us to imagine crime, gathering people up for things that uh, haven't happened yet, but uh, by doing so mean that they are then criminalised. Uh, we're going to have a rank and file followed by a little piece picked up by Corey Green about what happened on Friday, which was another new version of the changing complexion of policing in Australia. If you didn't realise, Border Force... Misstepped on Friday. They made a press release saying that they were going to come into Melbourne over the next three days and, uh, use shock and awe effectively by stopping people in the street to check on their visa status. You know, d- without any, uh, there won't be any racial profiling. There will be no, uh, any reason but, uh, basically, uh, what they feel would be an appropriate, uh, thing to do to basically, I guess, do a sort of a low-level terrorisation of the people of Melbourne. But there was a call-out and uh, it has been stopped and cancelled. So Corey went down there yesterday at two and uh, spoke to somebody, one of the protesters, demonstrators, that's uh, stopped the... uh, the street uh traffic on uh Flinders and Swanston Street, which is getting a pounding these days in regards to uh pushback in regards to uh, overstepping the mark from what is increasingly, uh increasingly unpleasant government that we're experiencing, federal government we're experiencing in Australia. Uh, We're going to have This Is The Week That Was and uh, we're following it up with uh, the interview that I did or part of an interview I did with Lex Watton, the Palm Island man that was uh, arrested for inciting riots after uh, the um, death 10 years ago of Cameron Damundji, up in in Palm Island in police custody. Now, of course, death in custody, uh, police deaths, uh, Aboriginal deaths in custody hasn't gone away despite millions of dollars being uh, put into uh, the Royal Commission during the 80s. And uh, Lex has got a lot to say about uh, what happened then. And uh, he gives us a lowdown on how he got caught up as an Aboriginal man in uh, being a scapegoat effectively for what happened on Palm Island. So that's in the last half hour of this show. Uh, So um, let's uh, start off with a little bit of a uh, message.
2: Hi, Ivan Hexter here. When the community battle against East West Link started with drilling behind my house, I took my camera out. Sixty hours of footage later... I need your help to tell this community story.
0: The sheer arrogance of a government trying to foist a multi-billion dollar project on us.
2: Tunnel Vision. The story of right beating might. Donate to the Tunnel Vision crowdfunding campaign to be part of the Tunnel Vision project. www.chuffed.org That's d.org. Then look for Tunnel Vision. Be part of Tunnel Vision, the real story of the East-West Link. If the person in front of you has got a belt on, hold on to
4: the belt in front of you. Tunnel Vision is a 3CR supporter. Now, Professor Jude McCulloch is uh, a professor of criminology at the Monash University. And as I said, uh, we're talking, having a chat with uh, Jude about her books Uh, the Blue Army paramilitary policing in Australia and following up with pre-crime prevention precaution in the future. Now, uh, we'll start off with um, our uh, wonderful co-host, Kim.
6: I wanted to ask you uh, firstly about uh, your first book, um, The Blue Army and the paramilitary squads within the Victoria Police, um, but also more generally. But the central thesis um, of that book was that the establishment of specialist counter-terrorism units within state police forces in the mid-70s has led to um, increasingly militarised forms of policing. And once you've read the book, it's the evidence seems quite incontroversial, uh, but it's actually quite a controversial formulation. What was the process you went through to come to this conclusion?
0: So the first step in the journey to writing the book was about the early 1990s and um, there was a spate of fatal police shootings and I was working at a community legal centre and these police shootings, some of them clustered around and the community that I was working with and I started working with other members of the legal service with the mothers and sons of men who'd been fatally shot by police and I was employed um, on a project to, to help bring those stories to public light and pursue justice in relation to those um, police fatal shootings and eventually a spate of fatal shootings, um, including others, led to the instigation of a coronal inquest into these fatal police shootings in Victoria
4: can I just, can I just uh, jump in there? Because as a person who's just part of society, whenever there's fatal shootings, police fatal shootings, there's always a straightforward um, uh, message given to the public that there was always a reason for why, and the public, the member of public behaved in such a strange and uh, a terrible manner that we needed to shoot them. And uh, that's the message. How did you actually... Were you able to subvert that message?
0: Well, I think that's a really important question, and dealing with the media and, and looking at the narratives around the fatal shootings was an important part of the process, because what we found was that in the immediate aftermath of a shooting, there would be a justification related to the behaviour of the deceased, but over time, different facts would emerge, and We found that there was a pattern of vilification and often distorted or incorrect information released to the public about the shootings. And over time we were able to shift the narrative around the shootings from one that very much focused on the venality, criminality of the deceased to look at a pattern of behaviour by Victoria Police where there was um, disproportionate amount of shootings compared to other states, a sharp increase in fatal shootings by police, and some serious questions about the nature, legality, and necessity of those shootings. In that, many of the people were unarmed when shot, or controversially, it was it was questioned about whether the firearm that was found was actually um, the de- deceased firearm. Um, also, a number of those shot and killed um, were not had didn't have firearms, but edged weapons, and some of them, or many of them, were shot in the back. And while the police would say they were being attacked, it seemed like um, the people were in fact retreating and trying to get away from the police. And in at least one case we argued, or it appeared, that the police were engaged in a revenge shooting. So it's true that in the immediate aftermath of a critical incident like a shooting, the police and other officials have great defamation edge. But over time, if there is organised and well-informed campaign, um, you can change the narrative. And I, I make, the, I make um, a parallel point about um, the contemporary campaign in America, Black Lives Matter, and whilst... Individually, the police will vilify a person and say they were shot, they deserve to be shot. The Black Lives Matter campaign very much is creating a pattern saying, look at all these shootings as a pattern and unpicking the story behind the shootings and challenging the official story about those shootings.
4: If we go back to the 1970s, the next step that the establishment then will take once you've changed that narrative is a cronial inquiry, correct?
0: Yes. Well, the Coronial Inquiry was held in the 1990s and um, and it looked at 11 fatal shootings by Victoria Police. And it looked at the patterns of shootings and it took a long time to bring down its finding, and it was very thorough, but one thing that um, was clear, the coroner said that there was a culture of confrontation in the Victoria Police and some of the shootings, while lawful or couldn't strictly be said to be unlawful, Um, were unnecessary and that really contradicts the police mandate to use only minimum force and to protect life. Mm -hmm. So it was saying that the police, rather than adhering to the mandate of protecting life, using minimum force, were engaging confrontations that created a, a shoot or allegedly be shot situation and therefore unnecessary shootings. And also coming out of that coronial inquiry and the whole controversy around fatal police shootings, this quite unprecedented charging of 11 police officers with um, murder or murder-related offences over two fatal shootings.
6: Mm. I have to say that when I heard the, what was happening in Ferguson, it made me think of your book, which I'll mention again, um, Blue Army, Paramilitary Policing in Australia, because a lot of people suddenly started talking about the militarisation of the police in America and people wouldn't believe me that, the, that it's the same here. And I was wondering if you would be able to talk about the formation of some of these uh, paramilitary squads in the Victoria Police Force uh, that seem to be, I suppose, responsible for that very militarised sort of shock and awe tactics that people who've been to protests of late would be aware of.
0: In the mid-1970s under the Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser, paramilitary squads, Similar to special forces like the military SAS were set up in state and territory police forces. This was significant because there's always under Australian constitution been a strict demarcation between the police and military Um, because the use of the military against citizens in peacetime has been long associated with repressive regimes, not democracies. So these paramilitary squads were set up in secret, they were relatively small, they trained with the military, they had high-powered weapons, some military hardware, and I would say a military philosophy in that it wasn't about minimum force but overcoming, but eliminating threats, which is an euphemism for killing people, and overcoming by the use of overwhelming force so these were meant to be small units only used in counterterrorism or extremely high risk situations but over the last 30 40 years they've been very much integrated into everyday policing and been been normalized my book that came out in 2001 said that what has happened is these counterterrorist tactics have been integrated into normal everyday policing and one of the impacts on that has been to approach certain categories of people, whether they're dissidents, protesters as enemies, and to use extremely high levels of force. And I tied it back to when I looked very closely at the shootings, the spate of shootings in Victoria in the from the late 80s actually through the 90s, you could see the impact of the special operations group, as they're called in Victoria, impact of their philosophy and training on the police and actually in the mid-1990s recognising that the Victoria Police retrained all their thousands of members in relation to firearms to try and undo some of the influence of the special operations group who'd become heavily involved in firearms training. That's but cool. You talked about it's Ferguson cool. and the revelation of the very high levels of military equipment, hardware, philosophy that's been evidence on the streets in in America, both in the fatal shootings of African Americans in particular and the response to protests about that. And yes, my book very much reflects and unpicks, looks behind that trend towards militarisation that has very much come out into the open in previous decades, but most intensely and obviously in America since 2014. Mm-hmm. So much so that Barack Obama came out and said he's going to ban certain sorts of weapons and military hardware from being used by police. But that's only the tip of the iceberg. It's it's the militarisation of the everyday policing that's significant. But also I think that we've got to be careful about dating these things. My book talks about from what happened from the 1970s and other writers in the uk and america also talked about that but we can go back further and we've got to say that really the policing of african americans former slaves descendants of slaves in america has always been as if they were enemies of the state the policing Mm -hmm. of indigenous people in australia has always been as if they were the enemies of the state but there's a kind of normalisation and spreading of that practice um, through militarisation, which intensifies that for those groups, but also normalises it throughout the community.
4: If you look at the ideological nature of what uh, is expressed in the militarisation of the police, and as you said, demarking people as enemies of the state... Uh, the state and those people that are considered to be real citizens does that mean that uh, real citizens and the state uh, are becoming smaller while the so-called enemies of the state appear to be becoming greater in that ideological push
0: yes that's one way of expressing it and I would say that there really has been a big shift in the putative democracies like Australia in the nature of the relationship between state and subject. So we've moved from having a transparent state and subjects with civil liberties to having more transparent subjects which are presumed to be or presumptive or potential enemies and a state that under the banner of national security is a secret state. And so while the burdens of security expressed through paramilitary policing and through laws that are like emergency laws, falls most heavily on certain groups, the potential for them to be used, those sorts of policing and those sorts of laws to be used against anybody are there. Um, So I do think it's a fundamental shift in the nature of the relationship between state and subject. And part of that is that instead of citizens with rights who are protected from arbitrary straight intervention that is coercive, until it's shown overtly that that person, that citizen has done something wrong, there's a presumption and a reverse assumption where everyone's potentially seen as an enemy and in many cases have to prove that they're not. And that's linked to things like um, big data where we've got everybody's... Presumptive terrorist or potentially, so we have to um, collect data on everyone.
4: You're on three CR with Annie, and it's Solidarity Breakfast, and we're talking to Jude McCulloch. She's professor of criminology at Monash University, and we're going to go on to talk about her new book, Pre Crime, Pre Preemption, Precaution, and Future. Let's hear what she's got to say about the next stages of. Uh, uh, policing in Australia
6: Well um, would you be able to describe to us what exactly pre-crime is because as um, you point out it sounds like something from science fiction but it's now a reality
0: So pre-crime is the focus of my latest book and pre-crime is a term coined by P.K. Dick who wrote science fiction in the mid-1950s and many people will know the term from the film Minority Report, which was based on a PK Dick book. And pre-crime, basically, in, in the book and in the film, was a police unit that, using mutant humans called PreCogs, could predict future murders and intervene before they occurred to incapacitate the would-be killer. So... What my book, written with a colleague Dean Wilson, argues is that pre crime has not so much come out of science fiction because we can't predict the future with that degree of accuracy. But there is a shift, there is a trend in criminal justice um, to attempt to preempt crimes before they happen. And this has given rise to a whole range of laws, which we define as pre-crime laws, which aim to stop people from committing crimes before there's even any opportunity to commit that crime. So we define it as um, coercive interventions aimed at disrupting or intervening in non-imminent crimes.
4: That original uh, Philip K. Dick's story, Minority Report, which uh, uses uh, what in those days was the technological version of computers. Uh, I remember lots of cards and all the rest of it. So uh, what was interesting was that it was written quite early in his career, in sort of like the 50s, 60s. And what he was tapping into was the psychological notion of a a post-war, Cold War uh, phenomenon, which was that the state... Basically, was creeping into everybody's existence and changing the fundamentals of uh, the principles of democracy, right and law. Which is what you're. Does that tie into what you were saying about the way the uh, special forces training of the police has actually changed the psychological nature of uh, our society to such a degree that we think it's normal to be surveilled and we think it's normal
0: for them to preempt crime? Yes, I think that that's a good overview of it. And I do see the Philip K. Dick short story Minority Report, on the one hand it was utopian because it looked to a society that was crime-free and the Police Pre-Crime Unit, it did manage to eliminate many murders or most of them, but it was also dystopic because it looked to what happened if there was a false report and someone was branded a would-be criminal who was never going to commit a crime. And it also looked at the nature of the link between the past, the present and the future. Can we predict the future with any accuracy? Is it predetermined? He was concerned about the changing nature of the relationship between the state and subject and the way that an individual could be overwhelmed by... State interventions which were unjust But I would argue in the present Situation we don't Have any of the utopian aspects We don't have (laughs) the ability To predict the future with any Accuracy but we do have the Dystopian aspects where people Can be branded would be criminals Or terrorists and treated as If they are whilst PK Dick Looked at human pre-crog Mutants To predict the future and they could do it with accuracy. In the present we have things like big data, we have intelligence, we have science and math and we're told or the impression is that we can predict the future but in fact we can't and the future's not determined and although there's this veneer of science and math, really what we're doing is crystal ball gazing or like a new witch hunt and people are being determined as would-be criminals on the basis, not of what they've done, but who they are. So it's really just an intensified form of um, racial profiling, crystal ball-gazing, a type of witch hunt, based on the idea that things that people do, which may not in themselves be criminal and may not in themselves Unambiguously point to future criminal or dangerous actions are, when combined with people's identity, seen as nascent violence and treated as if the violence has already happened. And in the book, we go through very carefully using case studies to show how pre crime and preemption actually create the crimes they say they purport to prevent. It's a little complex as an argument but when you look at the case studies it's very clear that people are being convicted as terrorists who have been created as, and constructed as terrorists by the state and through these laws and countermeasures and they're not people who are likely to have ever engaged in terrorist activities. There's a few things. It's not just big data. It's also... Police intelligence, which, or security service intelligence gathering, which is, is not evidence, but it's got the, the spectre, the idea of objectivity and expertise around it. So intelligence is presented to show that someone may be a danger, but that intelligence may be no more than gossip, innuendo. Um, big data is... Another thing, statistics, and that might show the probability or the possibility of something happening in the future quite accurately, but it can't really point to individuals, and that's, that's the mistake that's made. Well, I was um, wondering
6: the, what the political ramifications of this are, because it makes me think of the Abbott government's new anti-terrorism laws and you know removal of citizenship rights and this kind of thought crime
0: yeah that exactly fits into the paradigm of pre-crime and the direction that we're going in on the basis of intelligence that is likely to be secret and not open to public scrutiny people will be deemed a threat and on that basis can have their citizenship removed so being deemed would be criminal would be terrorist on the basis that you considered a threat will be the grounds for this very substantive impactful intervention into people's lives and although you can see pre-crime in a number of selective areas counter-terrorism is the one where it's most obvious and i don't or we don't argue that pre-crime is being applied um, rigorously across a whole spectrum of potentially harmful acts so for example Um, family violence isn't being tackled in any pre-crime way at all. But certain threats, and this is tied to politics and the different value we put on different people's lives are hyped and seen as prime targets for pre-crime and then once you have the pre-crime in place it justifies countermeasures which go to reinforce or prove the threat. It's not actually because these are actually metaphorical crimes, and Dick says that. But it's true. They're crimes that have never happened and may never happen. But they become real when we act on them as if they are real. By, for example, sending 800 police to raid or or to preempt a terrorist act. Once you send 800 heavily armed police into an area to intervene in what's seen as being a future threat, then that threat becomes real because of the countermeasure. Once someone is convicted in court of a pre-crime offence, counter-terrorism offence, they become a terrorist, even though they'd never planned, never attempted, never conspired to engage in a terrorist act. And when I wrote Blue Army Paramilitary Policing in Australia, we were just beginning to see the militarisation of police. I'm hoping with the book Pre-Crime, I'm also, and my co-authors, also a bit ahead of the wave. We're just beginning to see the whole apparatus, the structures set up for pre-crime. This will become more and more obvious over the next decades. And it's important that we understand what it means now. We see the patterns, we see the political mileage that can be made out of pre-crime and join the dots. I'd say one of... One of the first examples was the invasion of Iraq on faulty intelligence that there may have been weapons of mass destruction. And there wasn't, but we were seen to need to preempt that threat. And in preempting it, in many ways, we made it come true through creating the chaos in Iraq that's still playing out today. So I know that's an international example but domestically we're seeing similar things happen where certain things are picked out as threats and then by responding to them as if they are as if we know they already are we're making them come true. So I hope this book really contributes to understanding the threat of precrime and preemptive interventions. And how we got there, because there is a line between paramilitary policing, which looks at people as presumptive enemies, and these pre-crime laws, which actually in many ways formalise the militarisation and these police powers into the written law.
4: Hi, this is Liz Stringer and you're listening to The Mighty 3CR on 855am and digital radio, 3cr.org.au.
5: And welcome back to another edition of Rank and File Radio on Community Radio 3CR 855 AM. And on today's edition we welcome back uh, CFMEU member Davey Thomason who was on the program a few months ago talking about a motion he passed in the CFMEU but Davey's back today to report back on the CFMEU branch meeting from through the week. Uh, welcome back to 3CR and Rank and File Radio Davey.
7: All the best there, Marcus. Uh, thank, thank you very much for this honour. Uh, I, I, I first want to acknowledge the, on behalf of my Naranjiri and Shetland family that I stand on the sacred lands of the Wurundjeri, the Kulin Nation, and we've built this city on, on stolen land, always been built on stolen land. All the cities of Australia has been built on stolen land By, 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 by my union. That is important.
5: We do make that acknowledgement. It is uh, entrenched in three C constitution too. That it's we do broadcast from stolen land. So
7: yeah, well uh, we you know uh, this uh, this week's branch meeting again was a uh, was inspirational uh, on the the seventieth anniversary of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki on the I think it was the sixth and the ninth of uh, of, uh, of of this month. Uh, I moved uh to the branch that we acknowledge the uh, that this uh, the c of mu uh, uh, oppose any nuclear the use of the nuclear bomb oppose the mining of of uh, uranium and oppose the storage of waste in in australia uh it was uh seconded uh, by the Gorilla, who uh, I, uh, he's a great comrade of mine, the Gorilla, and uh, it come from left field. I did not know who was going to uh, uh, second that, but uh, the, uh, the Gorilla spoke of uh, at an at a international conference he was at in Montevideo. He met uh, survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but he also met workers who had come from, from uh, Fukushima, that massive, uh, and it's still poisoning the Pacific and the world, what happened in Fok- Fukushima, and the Japanese are trying to ja- uh, rev up the nuclear industry again against the wishes of the Japanese people. So uh, the guerrilla sickened it and spoke about it, and uh, I was very honoured that uh, my my uh, old workmate and, and comrade, uh, the guerrilla, was uh, the seconder. Uh, the union passed it unanimously and uh, when I uh, I spoke on it uh, uh, and I I want to emphasize that when I get up and speak anywhere in uh, in Australia I acknowledge whose land I was on I acknowledge I was on the Wurundjeri people's uh, land and uh, that I'd uh, uh, tried to stop the building of uh, Roxby Downs when I was a uh, member of the Siemens union of australia the the it was the the union that amalgamated with the old wharfies union that created the mua so in i think it was 1987 i was uh, in a uh, a delegation uh, i drove my own car up to Roxby and i got there the the second day and the blockade had started the day before and uh, the scabs were trying to uh, to uh, move on to where the the shaft was going to be uh be dug and uh what happened was that uh uh I uh as fit as I am uh, I got the, the I'll try and explain the scene there was this white white low low slung bus with with darkened windows so you couldn't see this, the scabs could see you but you couldn't see the scabs Behind us was uh, uh, South Australia's finest uh, greys, the 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 mounted mounted thugs who call themselves coppers. And heading towards us was a uh, two helicopters uh, and uh, Range Rovers, uh, Land Rovers with all the the Star Force in it. And what happened as they were moving towards us? We were, we were in front of the Greys trying to stop the scabs get, and I got underneath the bus because I'm I, I was I was pretty fit and and the coppers couldn't get there because they were they were carrying a bit of weight. So what they done and I, I, it was unplanned. It was unplanned. I got a, and I hang on, I, I hung on for my life underneath the 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 scab bus and I, I held on to the. I didn't have any lock-ons. I just held on, but they got. This copper with long legs. He was he kicked. He was kicking my head, and I, if I hadn't let go, I'd I'd have been brain damaged. Now you know what I mean. So I was arrested and taken on the dog box to Andamuka, and my defence and uh, the justice up there. He was he was half decent justice, if you can call them that. He uh, he allowed me to, and I defended myself. I said the reason I was there was to stop the atomic bomb. I was against the bomb and the beginning of the bomb is digging up the uranium out of the out of the ground that's the beginning of the bomb and australia is is selling uh uh uranium to japan uh korea india pakistan and britain they're selling and possibly israel as well uh uh, them countries have all got the bomb, and, and possibly France. Uh, so I was taken there, and uh, I was a hundred and fifty dollars, or three days in jail. And uh, I'll tell you the story. Uh, one year later, and there was no way in. The, that I was going to pay a fine. I was jogging through Port Adelaide, where I was. I, I, I shipped out of Port Adelaide, and a and a cop car, and with me Doug, me big Doug. I was running with me Doug. And uh, a copper come alongside a, a sergeant, and he said, "Are you uh, Dave?" Uh, he called me Dave Thomason, Dive, Dive Thomason. <laughs> and uh, I said, uh, "Yeah." I said, "What do you?" Uh, I said, what, "What do you want me for?" He said, uh, "You got an unpaid fine here." I said, "Well, you know, I ain't paying it." So, uh, and I asked him, "I said, how do you know it was me?" Uh, and he said, "You stand out like dog's balls, mate." <laughs> so that was my little. Uh, 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 what do you call it? Uh, running with the local uh, sergeant, and I spent three days in the in the in the same cell that I'd spent in the old shithole of an Adelaide jail. Uh, the first it was the first jail built by the the British when they when they uh, invaded uh, what they call South Australia really. when they invaded uh, uh, Nunga where where the Nunga the Ghana people live was built on Ghana land. And I spent three days in the same cell I'd spent time in when I got jailed for jumping ship first. Oh, sorry, the second time. When I jumped ship the second time. When I jumped in Geraldton and I got caught in in, in Port Adelaide. So uh, that was my three days. Uh, and I, I told the branch this. I told the branch this when I was... Uh, when I was... Uh, uh, and I also told the branch that... Uh, Uh, At another time when I was uh, an organiser, this time an organiser, and I was in a union delegation using my right of entry to to enter the CIA base up on Cook of the Land in South Australia called Narunga. Narunga is is the spy base where the CIA, it's peppercorn rent, they paid fuck all for it, they paid nothing, as the usual. Nobody's paid the rent to here in, in in Australia, and the Yanks have had peppercorn rent there since they set the base up. And the base is part of a uh, before they had uh, had uh, uh, drones, and they had satellite. It was satellite uh, where the, in Noronga they could they could pick up the the uh, the Registration plates in Red Square. They could they could sit in in uh, and see exactly what was happening in Red Square uh, or any base, any any uh, any uh, rocket base in in the w- the old Soviet Union. So we were up there in, uh, and in Russia. Uh, so we were up there and uh, uh, it's in the desert, and they had this they had this fence that went for maybe uh, five hundred uh, half a meter. Half a kilometer one way and half a kilometer one way in a gate, and so we were with ends there was no ends to them. So we are moving up towards the gate, and once again meeting us was South Australia's famous uh, what do you call it uh, horse brigade? You know the 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 this big big uh, coppers on, on 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 the greys they're called the uh, police police greys, and we had linked arms and moving up close to the to the horses. Uh, two of two of uh, uh, South Australia's finest Star Force again again this time I got king hit. They call it the cowards punch now, but I was I was king hit, not completely out. They picked me, I had my hard hat on, uh, and uh, and another of of the thugs come out and they dragged me back in between the, 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 the horses. They spat me, kicked me, swore at me, pissed on me and dragged me to, uh, along with, and they, they frog marched, uh, the secretary, Benny Karslake. they fought backwards. He was badly bashed as well. And they put us in a, in a dog box in 38 degree heat with the no air conditioning. I, I was there for nearly, nearly an hour. Nearly an hour I was in that, and then they they took me. I was so badly uh, beaten. They took me to to Woomera, Woomera Hospital. Uh, I, they put me in a cell first, then then they put me in Woomera Hospital. Yeah. Uh, no charges. Nobody got charged for that, and they refused our our right, right of entry. What, so, what year was this
5: from? David uh, Peter, it was
7: well. I'll tell you who was the who was the foreign minister. Uh, was Kim Beasley so whenever Kim beasley was uh before the before the before the Howard beat them just the, the so who 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 was the who was the uh, it was keaton Keating. Keaton yeah keaton was the so and it was only the second time in history the second time in history that uh that uh, the coppers uh, sorry the the army had been used they flew in the army to try and stop us the the Previous time to that was nineteen forty nine during during the, again a Labour the Chifley, Chifley government Chifley and the miners strike. So only the second time they flew the troops the stoppers getting into the base. Uh, uh, so I I, I told the uh, I told the the branch this and the other experience I had and a lot of people didn't didn't know that was there was two bombs set off in uh, where they tested uh, they tested uh, uh, on. Using guinea pigs, the the traditional ones, the first First Nation people, and my my own uh, relation, uh, Yami Lester, who was blinded as a baby because of the bomb. He was blinded by the by the flash of the of the atomic. The British, it was called Taranaki, I think, was the name of the name of the the, the bomb, uh, and he was taken into a, and all all the survivors. There was not many survivors. The local, uh, the traditional owners, were bulldozed into the ground. Many, many people. They don't know how many were killed. They do not know how many were killed by that. There is no record being kept. But they were bulldozed into into uh, into uh, into graves. Uh, uh, the other and Yami Lester story is is being told. And Yami Lester became part of uh, our Naranjiri family, uh, Nonga family.
5: And another legendary leader, the last uh, leader of the BLF in Victoria, John Cummins, and later on tonight, his many hundreds uh, of comrades and friends gather once more to honour the legacy of yeah. a great man.
7: Well, even though we we're on, a, on opposing side, sides, me and John Cummins never said a bad word to each other. All John Cummins said to me was was words of... Acknowledgement and and support and solidarity. That's the type of man John Cummins was, and I took John John Cummins's flag, is back in the Trades and Labour Council in the, the place I belong in the Shetland Islands. It is twelve thousand miles away, being looked after by uh, by the the union uh, who who uh, who is head of the Trades and Labour Council there. Uh, it's a public sector union that ho- that holds that uh, that position in Shetland. But John Cummins's flag is. Uh, is proudly displayed in 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 the town where I belong, along with the the red flag from the Victorian Trades Hall that my great comrade Jacob Jacob Gretz Gret, Gret gave me to. It's also got the MUA flag there, and it's also got the NTU flag there. So I've got a you know there's four flags back there that uh, that I took took from Australia. You know what I mean? Uh, and I I want to say uh, S- solidarity from the Thomas and Kilmartry's, to, uh, to young Jimmy, but not only young Jimmy, his mum and dad, old Jimmy, and and all his family and relations. And keep your head up there, Jimmy. You know, you're doing a great job. You're, you're carrying on the great tradition of, of, of your clan. You're carrying on a great tradition of where you belong. You know, your left foot from a blue eye. From a blue noise, okay?
4: <laughs> and that's rank and file for this week. Thank you very much, Marcus. Uh, yes, indeed, last night was the uh, the John Cummings dinner. It was a full house. Uh, everybody had a good time, and it was generally terrific. There was a great speech by John Seeker and uh, Jed Carney, uh, which got lots of uh, excited... Um, Cheers and claps, especially after such a uh, innovating couple of weeks with uh, Dyson Hayden under the pumps, that, as in the Royal Commissioner, as well as a whole range of other missteps by the Liberal Party, the anti-union Liberal Party. Anyway, the... Uh, we in our little space of time between uh, now and uh, this is the week that was, which is coming up. Uh, we've got a little report on uh, what happened on Friday. Uh, on Friday, you may not have caught up with this, but uh, there was a, a demonstration, a quick, you know, uh, a quick demonstration that was called by uh, through social media uh, which uh, popped up down at uh, Flinders Street station which was around a press conference being called by the border force now the border force is a basically a new police force that's been instituted by the Abbott government which has the same level of uh, importance as the federal police and asio in fact uh it's supposed to be uh dealing with border security now, what it's decided to do was run a joint um uh operation anti social builders an anti social operation with the Victorian police over the next three days where they were uh going to spot check people in the street. Uh, around visas and uh, they were saying that they weren't going to be racially profiling people but it begs the question the practicalities of spot checking because it's just basically a general mozzing of the uh, community. But anyway, it was shut down with the demonstration. So Cory Green was down there, 3CR reported Corey Green was down there and she was able to get some uh, opinions from one of the uh, demonstrators.
1: Hi, I'm Corey from 3CR. What was your name? Zook. And what brings you here? I'm uh,
8: uh, protesting against the Department of Immigration and Border Protection, which is now called the Border Force, which is a quasi military organisation under this quasi fascist government that we now have. They said this morning that they were going to join up with uh, Victoria Police and uh, Transit Police to check visas of people on the street in Melbourne. Now they're saying they were not going to do that, but we know what they said this morning. And as soon as everyone heard that, the social media started to buzz and people got out on the street to protest. And what's been the result of that... The result is they have cancelled their wonderful project fortitude.
1: Was anybody warned this morning that they had to bring their immigration papers? Well, of course not. (laughs) Is it against the law in Australia to walk around without your immigration papers? Absolutely not. It is not against the law. And in
8: fact, the Department of Immigration does not have the right to randomly
1: check people's visas in Australia. Do you think this sort of action is encouraging the Reclaim Australia protesters? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Those uh, stupid Nazis think that
8: uh, the government is on their side and it's pretty hard to disagree with them on that one
1: particular point. What do you think it'll take to um, stop Australia's horrendous increasing racism? More public
8: uh, mass actions like the one today Uh, we need a lot more people out on the street people get off their bums put their beer down and get out in the street and keep Australia a democracy where people enjoy real freedom and
1: equality thank you very much you're welcome
4: and that's a little bit of a talk from someone who was down at uh, Flinders Street yesterday, trying stopping and if successfully stopping stopping a uh, a joint uh, Victoria Police and Border Force cops and Transit Police stop stopping people summarily. In the streets across Melbourne, on uh, for three days, this was their idea of an anti-social operation. It was interesting. The ticket inspectors left the gates open for the demonstrators. Apparently, um, some might say that this was probably uh, an offshoot of their feeling a bit politically emboldened by their recent industrial disputes. There were a lot of people and banners from the anti-reclaim Australia rally. So the success of those campaigns has spilled over to. Uh, quick, effective organisation for the latest racist attacks. Now, to, before we get on to uh, this, is the week that was. There is going to be a no room for racism, anti-Muslim uh, rights for Bendigo residents um, has welcomed the organisation of an anti-Muslim rally by fascist group, the United Patriotic Fronts in in uh, Bendigo. There's going to be a anti. Um, Uh, United Patriotic Front um, demonstration in Bendigo today uh, at the Town Hall. Uh, It's going to um, kick off at... Later in the day, but if you want to get along to that demonstration and you're in Melbourne, there is uh, no room for racism We're calling for people to come and meet at the Melbourne CBD at 11am today. Uh, you can ring them on 0432 That's 0432 seven oh three six. You can also look at their Facebook or their hashtag no room for racism to get an update. W dot room for dot com is also available. Bendigo Town Hall one thirty PM today that's one hundred and eighty nine to one ninety three Hardgrave Street, Bendigo. You can of course catch a train. There's lots of trains going to Bendigo if you want to be part of the anti-fascist rally that's going on today in Bendigo. Okay, this is The Week That Was.
2: A weak solidarity Bricky team Lister, when we have to feel a bit of sympathy, some sorrow for two people with whom this segment wouldn't normally empathise, but imagine the dilemma poor, Her Most Gracious Majesty's Kanga Mission hanging judge, Dick's son, no hide in his bias, must be going through the moral dilemma. A man of great integrity who has served the laws of the greatest little economic order of them all with such honour, his honour. Such a difficult choice for poor old Dickson. I must make a balanced, reasoned legal judgment between principle, the principle of a person's inability to comprehend that all proceeds go to the caring business class party, might have suggested some relationship to the caring business class party, a small error, small misreading any man of honour and integrity might make. Uh, Don't you mean gross stupidity or gross dishonesty? Clark sees that man, will have him charged with contempt against a great man of honour and integrity, contempt against what I represent choice between a small misunderstanding, minor misreading, and practicality, the question of my obscenely gross and deeply appreciated remuneration for ensuring the destruction of the evil trade union movement, which has for too long threatened the prosperity of the great economic order, which I have served so assiduously, with, as so many other great true-blue Aussies have pointed out, Great integrity. Poor Dixon locked in a moral wrestle between being sprung and his ongoing obscene remuneration. And our other empathetic uh, sympathy... Tuesday morning, poor Big Supremo, tiny a bit more for the bosses. We've got to feel sorry for him. Sometime, I mean, how would we feel picking up the news and finding you're less popular than Socialist Party Supremo and would-be Big Supremo little Billy and Ambition? It's, it's suicide material admittedly and understandably they're both in deep negative territory with none of the above recording its usual overwhelming preference but why do those who revere these poles as some sort of divine revelation persist in calling them popularity polls when we the pagan subjects know they are obviously unpopularity polls? although little billy did explain the secret of his slightly less unpopular It shows the invaluable benefit of doing absolutely nothing, he boasted. Both would welcome the name change to reflect the reality, the unpopularity poll, because then they'd both be in stellar positive territory. Same morning must pick up this serious spelling error and of all places, P1 of Tuesday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review. After all, we all know the share market, stockbroking and all that, Although the broke bit means different things to different people, the stockbrokers rarely seem to go broke. But shares and steel go together. After all, if nothing else, any profits the shareholders step up are stolen from the workers who created them. Share-broking, the share market making money from shares, is stealing at its very base. So Tuesday, True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review, P1, big headline, China fears hit, shares and steel understandable connection but what ignorance they spelled steel s-t-e-e-l ignorant sub-editor tiny fought through the suffering of the unpopularity poll to come out on the right side of his honor mr justice no hiding his biases dilemma the evil unions are pursuing this witch hunt against the king Mission, a blatant witch hunt against a great true blue Aussie, because the Kanga mission was about to expose a direct connection, a direct connection between the evil unions and the evil Daesh Islamic terrorist death cult. The evil Daesh Islamic terrorist death death cult. Uh, How can you say that? It just rolls off the tongue, rolls off the tongue. No, no, it is in the attachments to the terms of reference to the orders we handed the Kanga Mission, and that is an official government document which proves it must be true. And this incident shows just how evil the corrupt unions and Socialist Party are, that their immorality, their evil, their corruption can spread so far that no one is safe from their evil corruption, their evil corruption, their links to the evil Daesh Islamic terrorist death cult, the evil Daesh Islamic terrorist death cult, showing just how important it is that my very, very, very close friend, uh, uh, no, I mean that neutral man of integrity who has served this country with such honour, his honour, Mr Justice Dixon, no hide in his bias, remains in his obscenely remunerated position to bring down the report we handed him. Uh, don't you mean the commission you gave him? Uh, isn't that what I said? Two bitter commercial rivals, the Falfax and Lord Rupert of Wapping Empires, were so concerned about the damage the evil unions are doing to the greatest little economic order of them all, they got together Wednesday to hold this National Economic Summit, bringing together all these great practitioners of the greatest little economic order. Well, just to show the depths to which their evil has descended, that threat to national stability, the Maritime Union got hit for two hundred and fifteen grand the other day for the heinous crime of calling scabs scabs. The fair work true blue Aussie no longer work choices just looks like an ombudsman told His Honour the scabs had suffered loss due to marginalisation, apprehension and fear of violence poor dears, and the Honourable Scabs were awarded all this compensation. When are unions and lazy avaricious workers going to learn there is no such thing as class struggle? Anyway, on such matters, little, little Billy told the gathering of co-practitioners, we fail if we live in a class warfare world. Our focus should be on bringing interest together. And the ACTU co-practitioner, Dave Oliver for Capitalism, I'm looking forward to engaging with the business community and other organisations to focus on the significant challenges facing our nation. The other co-practitioners must have been shaking in their boots. No need to outline their ideas for getting us all together. Higher productivity with lower wages, more government subsidies and grants from the lower taxes they must have to be competitive on the great level playing field of world's best practice. Lower taxes funded from higher taxes. No, well, higher tax, the one truly fair tax, which taxes the poor, allowing the rich to provide for the poor more of those drops of yellow liquid trickling down. And now, the wheat that was sport just so I can have a personal bitch listener. For our footy fan listener, following last week's new telly rights deal, those of us who either can't afford and or wouldn't pay Lord Rupert a whopping on principle anyway to watch pay TV, in the past two deals, we've gone from five out of eight free-to-air games every round to three out of nine when this new deal kicks in, while those prepared to pay Lord Rupert for the privilege can watch all nine. And Kerry Stacks of Wealth's Free-to-Air Channel tells us this is a great win for footy fans. Being able to watch two less games from 62.5% of games to 33% can only be described as a great win if we resort to capitalist euphemistic speak. The one certainty is one of the three will condemn us to watching, or more likely not watching, tuning out good old Carlton being thrashed yet again. Oh, on that, while I'm bitching, as four of the top teams played each other last Sunday, Kerry Stacks of Wealth showed Carlton v. Melbourne, the great fight for the wooden spoon, to an audience I would suspect of about ten. Still, we could have paid Lord Rupert and watched the good games. It's called competition. It's good for us. While on Media Moguls, that local guy over there in the US of the UN of the US of the world who shot the TV presenter and camera operator, well, he, the shooter, is also dead, so he won't hear our advice. But if you've got a bitch against your caring employer, don't shoot the other workers. Shoot the caring employer. Give the boardroom a spray. Let them realize it's people who kill, not guns. Guns have nothing to do with it. We started this segment feeling empathy for Tiny and Dixon. Well, with poor old Dixon sitting as judge and jury on himself, there's been this spate of applications by common plebeian criminals demanding to adjudicate on their own guilt. There's no comparison. Dixon is an honorable man. He's honor While poor Tiny got the bad news about the unpopularity poll, while showing he really cared about the Terranullius people, and what ingratitude when some of them suggested the deficiencies, the odd signs of poverty and disadvantage, were exacerbated by the very cuts he'd made in helping these people he so cared about all the while weighing up whether or not we should obey the orders we requested to join the US I've been creating lots more refugees from across the world whom he can turn around and sink or lock up for the term of over and above a bit of collateral damage. Gee, it's hard to know which way he'll go on that one, isn't it? And finally, defending his candidate in this by-election, a trained killer called Hasty Wealth. This is a man who has saved us from being overrun by evil Islamic terrorism, and I say to train killer heroes, cream of true blue Aussie youth, young men and women in uniform loving decent true blue Aussies, hands off hasty death. Good morning.
4: Yes, and good morning, Kevin. We're running out of time on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, so we'll go straight on to our interview with Lex Watton, the Palm Island man who was the only person who, I think, who was arrested and incarcerated over the uh, issue of uh, the death in custody on Palm Island about 10 years ago, you'll remember. It's the uh, theme of a film called The Tall Man. So we will move right ahead.
3: I suppose, as people may be aware or not aware, but there was a death in custody on the island and there was actually three question into the matter. Uh, but there was a whole set of events where um, uh, things were denied for the process of law, I suppose, you could say, and um, and there was a cover-up from day one
4: you were part of a community pushback after it was quite clear that uh, things weren't happening following proper process. Uh, the way it was represented on our TVs in the news was that, uh, well, we saw the whole community come and stand around and uh, mm. make noise, you know, uh, about this, and it was represented as a violent riot.
3: Yeah, well, this um, uh, propaganda, I suppose, from the mainstream media, and but... Uh, I suppose they might have been misled, you could say, in the sense that you got a uh, group within the police itself. They got police media, so they tell one side of the story, you know, you know. And back um, before that, yeah, there was and, the death, and, and then, then there was the, the pushback. Death, well, they started the cover up, yeah, and a week later, but two days or three days later, we the community yeah. started to. Um, wonder what was happening because there was talk of a public meeting being held on the island by the local leaders who were going to lead a thing and then someone from the Queensland police was to come and um, explain explain what happened and stuff. So people wanted answers. There were rumors over that weekend to say that um, you know so and so the deceased died this way but everyone was on a well, and by really? that
4: time you would have collected all the information from all the people who saw him walk along the road and
3: yeah, well, yeah up.
4: Everybody would have
3: collected all the details. Yeah, well, in your mind, you you know, everyone talking about how why he got locked up and he was actually um, seen by witnesses. He was actually slammed into the back of the paddy wagon and stuff like that. And, and it's a
4: small community. Yeah,
3: and um, and you know everybody,
4: mm, and, and you already know that he what he's like and. How yeah. he's lived his life and well, he's a friendly guy. And
3: Yeah, and then there was rumours about this officer attacking other local people and then there was a witness outside the um, actual um, police station when um, they pulled the deceased out of the thing. He got out. Yeah, he done what he did. He actually assaulted the copper, so the copper didn't like that. So, you know, it was, uh, I suppose... Bought him down in his authority in that sense, you know, made him look small. So, yeah, he assaulted him and, well, that's what you would think would happen and, because um, there was also another local witness inside the police station at the time and he actually saw the beating and stuff like that and then um, they realized that he seen that so they told him to leave the police station and, um, so, um, he, um, after on a Tuesday, this is a couple of days after that death you know, he's dead within an hour, you know, 40 minutes Um, so this witness, he explains to the community on the Tuesday meeting that uh, he actually witnessed the beating that afternoon they arrest him he's taken to prison on the mainland in Townsville and then told you know he was threatened by bloody authorities in the prison and by police um, to say that you know you can't you don't say anything about this stuff you know so he's put away until um, this copper goes to um, to court and stuff and then is acquitted but um, I asked a question during his trial I asked the prosecutor why wasn't he called and because he made a statement um, that he drank so much amount of alcohol, but his story never changed, and like I say when we say when we when I used to drink years ago, twenty odd years ago, when we say we, we drank so much amount of alcohol we 're not saying that we drank it ourselves, say a cart and a big <laughs> sitting around with you know ten blokes, so how much alcohol you 're going to get out of you know twenty four Cans, you know?
4: Oh, it was, it was quite clear that the witness was being discredited.
3: Yeah, so and that's what they did in the um, initial inquest, at the very beginning. So they demonised him. And there is, um, for the listeners out there, there is a documentary if you haven't seen it. Yeah, the tall man. Yeah, the tall man. And it's, it's a fantastic documentary. Yeah, you you can see all of that stuff, and it explains that. And I think for you know listeners to go and you know. Research this and have a look at it, and they'll get a bit bit of an idea on what happened in that particular case. But, like I said, there were tree inquests and stuff like that. He denied falling on this bloke, yet he ended up with this broken ribs and liver splitting up, and all this, this, and that. Real serious injuries were could only happen in a car accident.
4: But well, that's so, what the pathologist said.
3: Yeah, so even when the um, Uh, pathologists at the very beginning because the community was suspicious on um, who's going to do the autopsy and stuff that there was an actual police officer in while the pathology was being carried out you know so I think there was ended up about another thing independent so but we wanted to make sure all the community and the wider in the wider communities interest that all of these things should have been followed well they should have followed the the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths and Custody Report so
4: It becomes the Australian injustice system when this sort of thing happens doesn't it? Mm.
3: So like I said the the cover up was happening and and the whole event of um, trying to think and at one stage I think he was um, they made it um, well the DPP department didn't want to pursue him because you know According to them, there was there was no
4: case to to answer. There wasn't enough evidence to pursue the case. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When you
3: look at what happened, I think with the community and everything else, well, well, a week later, um, the community took action and stuff like that. You know, the um, police station um, went up and smoke and all this and that. And then I was um, thrust into the spotlight, I suppose, and. Um, when you uh, you got
4: put in the spotlight, but you obviously made a decision. It, it takes a lot of personal guts to step over the line, you know, to stand there and say, "Listen, this isn't good enough. This is not okay. We can't get, proceed. It's not all right." Yeah. Well,
3: you um, if you see the because you know because yeah. this
4: man was beaten. Yeah. Well, to death. From my
3: understanding, um, over those that weekend up until leading up to the Friday when the um, community took action I um knew that um knew of the royal commission into aboriginal debts and custody I had actually two copies of the um um report and um I read that some years before and I knew that there were things in it that um didn't seem right to me and I knew that they weren't following and um come the Monday there was a Public meeting with the police, but before that meeting um, I um approached the council and stuff like that about um what was happening because there was too much rumors in the community, and we needed to get to the bottom of this stuff and then so um I approached the council to um find out what was happening they were too worried about their own monthly meeting so i blew them up about that and told them that the community was more interested in what happened with thing and as the as our leaders they need to bloody lead s- yeah and bring someone to the table and let us know what's happening because um thing but no and all so that um, they're only going to tell you what they want you to hear because um they just want pace yeah. peace at any price, yeah, and so what happened was we actually went up now someone saying out at a public meeting, let's go up to the police station, and I thought, oh, that's the wrong move, so we went up to the um headed up to the police station, and all of a sudden um it wasn't more than fifty meters away Um no. all of a sudden, I'm at the very front of the um crowd and so um. As we um, tee in the on the into the laneway up into Main Street, ah, sorry, Police Lane.
7: Oh, Police Lane. where the police, pl- yeah, oh. pl-
3: where the police <laughs> station is. Um, um, this officer who's supposed to be at the center of the death and custody, he drives in with a, another local that they just arrested. Him and the, he he pulls in.
4: So he the, hasn't been uh, no, stood he, down. No, he he hadn't
3: been stood down, and. The funny thing is the investigator who's supposed to be investigating him, his friend who's actually supposed to investigate him six months prior for another incident, which um, he um, apparently, you'll see it in the documentary, Mm. um, ran over um, the deceased um, niece's foot, you know, Mm. and so... You see all of these things tying into a picture where everything interrelates to what happened, I suppose. And anyway, he, he drove into um, to the driveway of the police station, and um, they jumped out. And like I said, uh, the investigator with him and a few other officers and one of the the actual local um, police liaison officer who actually witnessed what happened there too. He approached us and I said to him, um, can you explain now because the community wants to know what happened here? And his response was, what, two years of year service not good enough for you people. So that was point blank. And I said now to the community, now you hear his response. You either, you either do something to this man or walk away because I'm walking away and I walked away and I, I actually felt like, Know hitting him, and if I would have hit him, the crowd around that day would have, you know, I don't think that bloke would have survived anyway.
4: Mm. Now, now, why were you arrested? Well,
3: um, that night, if you see on uh, Friday evening, it was I was on the news, um, you see sh- a shovel in my hand and stuff like that. So I was, like I said, thrust into the spotlight. I was accused of leading people to the um, ah, right. police station and um, uh, smashing the with, place With up. intent. Yeah. With intent or something yeah. of that nature. And um, But before all of that was ha- supposed to have happened, you know, six months before that, I was working for a plumbing company on the mainland. and But I was getting drawn back. I don't know what drew me back to the island. I said to my employer, I said, look, i got to go back to the island. So um, he said, yeah, you go back, Lex, and if things don't work out, come back for the night we went to Shank. Townsville, me and my wife to do the shopping we come back to the island on the uh, 19th and that's when the deceased died that particular day and I actually had a nap when um, um, we got back to the island and my missus' uh, wife, she was um, uh, unpacking the groceries and stuff like that and then when I got up from the nap she said she told me about the incident and my um, old initial um, reaction to that was, and the only words I said was, they're going to cover this up. And so um, as it proceeded down the week, uh, it became that weekend, like I said, rumours and stuff. Monday come, we talk about a meeting. I go up there and the police officer is at the centre of another arrest, which didn't ha- shouldn't have happened. And so we actually got together community put some resolutions that I actually worded them and uh, notice were taken and we put uh, the resolutions forward on a council letter and sent that off to the state government asking for the premier to attend the community and the police minister commissioner and um, anyone in the social justice department to come over and um, give us assurance that um, like I, I worded those things that things would be followed under the guidelines of the deaths and custody report. Uh, it was all ignored by the government and stuff. So, um, yeah, over a period of that week, you have a series of meetings and stuff, and um, media was there um, on the island, and then that's why later on that day on the Friday, you see me with a shovel in my hand. Um, that was broadcast nationwide and internationally so, too. So, um, but um, leading up to that, there were plans for me to go to to the mainland and get groceries. And um, my normal route to the airport, I didn't have. Um, I didn't go. I said to my wife, "Let's go through Mango Avenue and down through Main Street, which is past the um, police station." And at the top of Main Street and um, just out in front of the police station, there's water bubbling up on the road. So there was something wrong with the um, water service along that line um, on Main Street. So I edited down Main Street because there was um, rumors that um, the report autopsy results were going to be read out because, um, like I said, rumors spread like wildfire that it was going to be read out at a public meeting on a Friday it would sort of give the community an idea what really happened with him you know how he's supposed to have died some measure of how he died yeah. and so um, we um, headed on I didn't see the meeting was thing, so we headed out to the airport and those blokes they went and saw the um, council um, acting CEO at the time she's um, told him look, go out and see Lex, and ask him to come back and fix up the... The plumbing? Yeah. So um, they approached me out there at the airport, and I said to him look, I'll come and fix it. So I went in and started on the thing, tearing the water off and added all the thing, but I couldn't um, tighten up the nuts because on the, they call it a um, uh, feral cock and uh you need a wrench, a particular yeah, type need, of wrench. I needed a spanner. Yeah, a spanner, all right. To tighten them up. But it, like I said, he didn't want to send the keys, he didn't send mm. the keys for the toolbox, he didn't want anyone. So, how in. does
4: this relate to the um, arrest?
3: Well,
4: I'm, oh, well, you're getting to it, I'm okay.
3: Given your story, so yeah. people can follow my side of the story, I, oh, I cool. was demonized, I suppose. So, um, what happened was. Um, Uh, The water was off, I couldn't tighten the thing because on palms we have our um, uh, lunch breaks at home and I needed a um, backhoe to excavate the site so I can get down and tighten up the thing and I did end up getting a smaller wrench but it wasn't the Mm, appropriate tool but it would have done the job Mm. but um, I still was waiting for the uh, um, backhoe but so I went down the road and did some little bit of work down the road, and then the meeting started, so I went over and sat down, and you'll see that in the um, documentary, you'll see me sitting there, and then the reports are read out, and then the community is dumbstruck, you know, of what they're hearing.
4: Yeah, that's right, okay.
3: Because there was rumors that, you know, they fell down, that's all, so you know, something leaked out that they fell down, but Anyway, um, it was I, a contrary yeah, story. Yeah, uh, I, someone
4: had started a story that didn't relate to the reality, but could fit into people's minds yeah. to be right. Yeah. So um,
3: we're the report and stuff like that, um, then um, the community takes action, and um, I play my role, I suppose. And then um, later on, it is deemed during the committal proceedings. Oh. I'm arrested the next day because what's on television? There's um, witnesses supposed to have been identified, and I was supposed to do this, this, and that. I was supposed to have uh, sledjammers. I was supposed to have bars, I was supposed to have. Um, was that in the actual arrest? No, no, this is evidence. That evidence? That they supposed to, these witnesses supposed to have identified me with. Wow. Was this so community was members? Sp- some... Community, community members. Mainly police office. Ah, cool. Okay. But no one identified me with a shovel. Out of all of this thing, no one identified the only me thing that you really did have. Yeah, what you see me in the documentary. No one identified me with a shovel. And the person who had the, took the um the actual video evidence, you know, the media. Yeah. He identified me with a shirt, he identified me with a wrench, he identified me with everything else, but no one identified me with a shovel oh I see so and also when the police uh, the fire truck went up to fight the fire uh, when they wanted to fill up the tank to um, you know keep water in the Mm, tank yeah yeah they couldn't because there was a fire hydrant on that main (laughs) road you see
4: which goes back to the original
3: Mm, story which goes back yeah so they couldn't fill that up so I'm accused of actually setting it all up (gasps) you know but when the plumber gave ev- evidence, when they questioned him about... I didn't realise what this yeah. was all about. Either. So when they questioned him in the committal proceedings about that stuff, his evidence was the night before um, the, the electrical company, Egon Energy, um, was doing some work along Main uh, Street. They, you know, those cherry pickers that on the truck? Yeah. And when they put their booms down, yeah. the boom put a lot of pressure on the pipe and broke the water pipe. So yeah. that's why... And when I was actually doing the work, the officer who's supposed to investigate the officer, he just come from around the airport picking up um, recruitments to the roster change because they had intelligence that, you know, there'd be more action. Well, there was something brewing.
4: Okay, so they'd sent some reinforcements.
3: Mm, And he actually pulled up with um, those officers there and asked what. Happened and had a conversation yeah, with you, and and it was explained to him what happened. And then when he drives away, it was all part of my committal proceedings. He identifies me to the officers as number one target, so it all thing. My profile was already up in the in the police station. So, so, so it's you? all part of that um, thing. It's no one's. A lot of people haven't heard the story, so. I think it's good that I can, given the opportunity to things, because a lot of people will hear a different side to why I got thrust into the spotlight. I suppose, and yeah, I did something, but you know that's um, uh, not to the degree that I was but also uh, pursued. You are,
4: but you are allowed to. I mean, a man, man from your community goes into the police station uh, alive mm. and then comes out dead. Mm. Uh, you are, as a community member, allowed to stand up there and say, we expect
3: answers. Well, we we tried, you know, they... They, they wouldn't tell you. Well, they told us on a me- meeting on the Monday. We had actually... Um, when we approached the officer about the thing, like I said, he's answered two years of service, year, so reinforcements were called in from then on, and then extra officers would... Bought, Board in to um, take over, relieve him.
4: As if you were the problem, but yeah. you weren't part of the actual and I death.
3: A- yeah, and I actually approached those officers for a public meeting. They came, they accepted a, uh, a meeting with the community, and then before they came down to that meeting, I actually approached the community and told them that their behaviour that morning with um, when we approached the officer about uh, um, him to respond to questions. They were very abusive. I actually told the community that their behavior is going to stuff things up, and hopefully, that when we get these other officers down here, they don't carry on like that. And they did do the right thing, the community. There was only one a bloke that abused the, the bloke at the center of the investigation, but that was between themselves because of some drug issues. A where, personal altercation. Yeah, the community took action. We went on to, um, uh, well, that e- that evening, well, I tried to assist police officers to get off the island and stuff, and that's all part of all of my sentencing and my um, trial and everything, you know, but they didn't want to go because they were setting me up and waiting for more reinforcements to come, and they actually tried to get the army in but the army knocked it back so that's why they declared a state of emergency to get around the um the um warrants when they um c- come in with um what is it the um anti terror squad oh for so god's that sake that was all everything and it was deemed to be like i said my arrest was illegal and stuff like that but my whole world community was terrorized in the Days after when I was arrested, right on five the next morning, Saturday morning, 27th of uh, November, um, you know I was tased and stuff like that, and um, why I was, you know, there was no need to, but they tased me, and but you know because I didn't just take the direction of getting down on the ground, but at the time um, the door was open, my front door was open, I was actually standing up in a, just a pair of shorts waiting you know, mm-hmm. they even accused me of looking for a place to run I saw them coming away from half a mile away so you know I oh why should I run I not they to run. been watching too much American yeah. TV so um, you know I'm arrested with from nearly about 80 officers you know you got oh, three lots of, three lots of anti-terrorist squad members and you got um, CIB and you know then you got the normal um, uniform officers and stuff like that. So, so you do you think ne- that, you know... Negotiators and yeah, so they dog cou- handlers, all oh, that. Really? Yeah. It's I mean, funny
4: they didn't bring horses.
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, anyway, I was arrested and taken off the island and while in Townsville, I was asked about a high-powered rifle. So they were trying to fabricate this evidence saying that a high-powered rifle was missing so that they can still get around. I suppose they realized that you know, they have to tie up this thing about the arrest, and it's not illegal. But anyway, that um, that was all found out through the committal proceedings in their own video evidence. The gun turned up there in their own video evidence, and the police officers added in his own possession. So they lied about that. That was never ever pursued. A lot of things, you know, police officers didn't sign their statements. Under law, they don't have to s- sign their statement. A lot of fabrication with their evidence. During the trial, I saw witnesses um you know uh actually the jury um see all the evidence crushed by my lawyers and stuff but what I'm up against is a uh, all white jury. I even fought to get my case out of um because it's racist you know i um in back in sixty seven when they did the referendum to recognize the um our people in the, um, in the census, well in Toowoomba, I think it is, were... how they only, voted against it? Yeah, only two communities, <laughs> you know, against the thing. But overall, I used that information, plus when I was first released on bail um, after I was arrested and, what, I think nearly 14 days later, we were all given bail.
4: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community
8: radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information go to all the dot One
0: of I'd say first exam one of the the examples was spark on for evasion of Iraq. intelligence that faulty infant weapons may of- may have been and mass destruction. But we were seeing and there wasn't that threat.